Tell me your story. Tell me your story. How did it all start? Do you remember? Oh, I know what happened. How did it stop? You're now tuned into the Small Business Origins Podcast. I love an origin story. Each week, we dive into the real stories of entrepreneurs and businesses from across the nation. Who is he and what's his origin story? Who started with just an idea and are now making waves. I told you this was a good idea. This is Small Business Origins. of Small Business Origins. As always, I'm your host, John Kelly, a.k.a. John the Marketer on Instagram and TikTok, and you're tuned in to our nationwide search. We are looking for entrepreneurs that have a story to tell, and joining us from Kansas City, we have Dick Grove with Inc. Inc. PR. That's Inc. Incorporated PR. Dick, welcome to the show. Thank you. Privileged to be here. I appreciate it. Man, we are privileged because we get to meet awesome people from across this country and just here. And, and, you know, honestly, it's gone worldwide, too. I've got um, a few people from Australia and Canada and all these places that I get to interview. And it's such a pleasure to hear these stories and how different they are, but how much they can have in common as well. And so it is always my privilege to be here, listen to your story, get to know you a little bit. But before we hop into the good stuff. We always start out with an icebreaker question. And today's icebreaker question is, what excuse do you use all the time? <laughs> what excuse do I use all the time? I use a, uh, a real excuse. How's that? Because over the years, I lost my hearing pretty much uh, from my uh, my divergence into the entertainment and music business back uh, about 40 some years ago and uh, so the excuse i use often is i'm sorry can you repeat yourself and uh, <laughs> or or i absolutely ignore somebody sometimes when i don't want to talk to them and with the idea that i couldn't hear them anyway and somebody always tells them that so that's that's my excuse. Heck yeah, whatever works, man. I'll tell you, mine is sometimes real and sometimes it's just like that canned response that I just always have ready to go and it's I'm tired. I'm tired. You know, why do I have a grumpy look on my face? I'm just tired, man. I'm not being rude or mean or ugly. I'm just tired. And uh, every now and then, for some reason, you know, like recording this episode today, I woke up uh, about 8, 830, or no, I'm sorry, 7 to 730 this morning. But I went to bed at like 11, so I got plenty of sleep, but I still woke up tired, and I don't know why. And so everybody was like, man, why do you why do you look like you're just sluggish today? And I'm like, I'm just tired. That's my excuse every single time. And sometimes it's real. Sometimes it's just I'm so used to saying it and being it that it just winds up as part of that language. It just falls out immediately. But I'm trying to correct it and get better. Yeah, John, maybe it's because you uh, you interview entrepreneurs all the time. And, uh, <laughs> And we're always tired from running a business. So uh, maybe you get tired from listening to it. So, Well, I'll tell you, too, I, I've i got a full-time job. I've got a part-time job that is basically full-time. I also run a company. I'm an entrepreneur myself. And then I do podcast hosting. So, you know, you're right. It's, it's hearing everybody else's tiredness and then just combining it with my own. And it just becomes that excuse that kind of sticks with me, I guess. But... We're here to talk about you. So what's your origin story? Where'd you come from and how'd you get into entrepreneurship? Well, I'm, I I came from Kansas and I, originally, but uh, I spent a good part of my youth in uh, California, in the Bay Area of the Cal of California. 
so I'm kind of uh, uh, mid-bicoastal, let's put it that way. I went to high school part of the time out there, part of the time in, uh, in a small town in Kansas. But I think of myself as a Kansan, and uh, I have returned to Kansas about 27, 28 years ago from the West Coast and, uh, and set my business up here. I originally started it in uh, the Bay Area of California and then moved it back here. But my, my origin story is that uh, I, when I graduated from uh, college, from the University of Kansas, and uh, I noticed that you had made a note that uh, I was the first ever graduate student uh, getting a master's in actual public relations. And, uh, and that's true, uh, at the university. They, they did not have a sequence for PR in the graduate school, but I, I wanted to stay. I had been and accepted at a couple of other schools, but at the same time, uh, KU was familiar to me and cheaper. And so I decided to stay and go there to school. Uh, but, I also learned something else when I was in college, and that was that uh, the rumor that was in those days, and this is back in the uh, late 60s, the rumor was that you had to have New York experience if you were ever going to be successful in PR or advertising. And uh, rather than wait around for that experience, I decided as soon as I graduated, I was going to go to New York and, and get it then. I have never been to New York, by the way. And I went and pounded the pavement uh, over an Easter vacation before I got my graduate degree, and uh, and lucked out with a with a perfect uh, and it's a true story. I uh, among many PR firms that I was going to go and knock on the door of one was uh, Burson Marsteller, which I didn't know at the time, but they were the second or third largest PR firm in the world at the time, and. Uh, I went up the elevator, sat in an ill-fitting suit, and uh, and the receptionist asked me what I wanted. And I said, well, I'm kind of looking for a job, and I want to know if I could talk to somebody. That's the naivete of a young guy coming out of college. And uh, a gentleman came out at, conveniently at that time checking a ticker tape machine that checked that ran through like a dome that had stock prices coming out of it. That's dating myself, but that's true. Yeah. She asked at the time, she said, uh, um, Mr. Buckwald, uh, do you know of anybody could talk to this gentleman? Uh, he's looking to talk to somebody about perhaps employment. And uh, he looked over at me and looked at the stock thing and looked at his watch and said, oh, I got a couple minutes, come on in. Uh, little did I know he was the vice chairman and co-founder of the company. And uh, we sat behind the biggest desk I'd ever seen. About 20 minutes into the interview or my discussion, he looked at me and he said, uh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to hire you. And I'm going to hire you with one condition. And I said, well, and he said, I'm hiring you because you're from Kansas. And he said, I want that viewpoint in my New York office. And uh, he said, but under one condition. And I said, what's that? And he said, I'm going to check in six months. And if you've turned into a New Yorker, I'm going to fire your ass. Uh, so <laughs> I promised him I wouldn't. <laughs> that was the beginning. So my first job was uh, was rather elevated from my, from my beginnings. And uh, uh, 
from there, I went and, and transferred into uh, and worked for one of their clients on a leave of absence in Michigan and then transferred into the Chicago office of Burson Marsteller and uh, and eventually joined a large advertising firm in Chicago called N.W. Aronson. But and from there, I went to uh, the corporate world out on the West Coast and uh, the, which is where my wife was uh, from. And we always had kind of a desire to head back to the West Coast if that was going to be possible. And now I figured I had my New York experience, so what the hell? And uh, uh, so I went to work for a corporation out in California. Um, and that was kind of the beginning. But over the years, I worked for two or three different companies, uh, and usually in the kind of what was in those days called industrial advertising or industrial PR. Today, it would be called business to business or B2B. But uh, in, in, so what happened was after a period of time, I started thinking to myself that I really wanted to have my own firm. I had actually been thinking about it since I was about 14 years old, to be honest with you, when I started a, a, an advertising agency in junior high to, uh, to run a guy's uh, ad campaign for a, for a, uh, when he was running for office in the in the junior high. So I had a I had a background of wanting to start something. So by the time that I was uh, uh, coming out of uh, oh probably the uh, 80s, um, I decided I really wanted to have my own firm. And uh, in the process of that, and I don't want to confuse you, but I mentioned earlier. There was about a five-year period where I left the world of PR, advertising, and mass communications, and went to work in the music business, owning a small recording studio in the Bay Area, promoting rock and roll acts and country acts and so forth. Uh, uh, I found it to be a lot of fun, but not terribly uh, advantageous for making money. So eventually, I went back to the uh, corporate PR world. But it was really around toward the 80s that I decided I wanted to start my own firm, uh, my own public relations firm, because I decided at that time uh, I had been noticing something over the years that PR firms, big PR firms, traditional PR firms, they got hired for a lot of different reasons. Uh, it could be crisis communication. It could be messaging. It could be, to a degree, getting uh, some publicity. But publicity was always usually down the line somewhere from it. And I always thought that was kind of odd because the one thing that got a PR firm fired faster than anything was not getting coverage, not getting coverage. So I decided to basically create a firm that had a different kind of model. And I turned it upside down and said, let's get let's dedicate a company to getting media coverage first and foremost. We can add in other services as necessary. And if we do this right, and I can keep the overhead low enough, I can do something else, which was unheard of in those days, which was not charge hourly fees, but to actually charge for actually coverage itself. And uh, I did that by basically designing a model that said, well, I'll have ex-journalists, ex-news people, to a degree, senior level people that can work from their homes, which was also unheard of 
back in the early 90s. And uh, by doing that, I can keep the overhead low. These people will be dedicated to get landing nothing but good coverage, media coverage. Today, what's called earned media coverage. In those days, we called it just traditional print broadcast. Uh, but to do that and to do it and then charge only after the fact for the actual stories that we were actually landing for a client. Um, very unheard of and uh, uh, a kind of revolutionary in the day. There, there are many firms now that have basically developed along the same line, but none have quite survived and done quite as well as we have over the years in terms of uh, in terms of delivering coverage on a consistent basis under what we have become known as a pay for performance compensation model. So that's that's my origin. Uh, it started uh, in California. I made a decision, a personal decision to move back to the Midwest in the early 90s uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I, won I wanted more space. I was a little homesick. Uh, and uh, two and three, I'm a I'm a motorcycle biker rider, and uh, and I wanted oh, yeah. I wanted the space of being able to ride back in the Midwest rather than the congested freeways of California. So all of those combined and uh, set up my uh, put my shingle out here, but it really didn't matter, John, because most of my people all work remotely, whether it be New York, Boston. California, Texas, Chicago, uh, pretty much all over. And before long, we were expanding and we had people in the uh, in uh, in Britain and in Europe and even in the Far East that were working for wow. us. Wow. So uh, that's that's where we started. That's why we started. And uh, and we're still here, which is a uh, a miracle in many ways. I was telling somebody the other day we've. We've survived five recessions, and it's cyclical. I'm telling somebody, don't get too discouraged when things go terribly wrong and you start losing business and accounts. If you can hang on, it'll come back. Uh, the economy is very cyclical. And uh, just hang on, do your job, cut your costs if necessary, uh, but make sure that you're delivering for clients because ultimately those clients are going to be, uh, they're going to be your best references to grow future clients. So that's, that's. Yeah. I love that. I, I, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I just, oh. I love what you're saying there because it's, it's so true. And I think as entrepreneurs, it's hard for us to keep that in mind that it's like when things go bad, unless you're just totally mismanaging your business or, you know, you're really doing wrong by your customers or you're not offering a good product or, you know, barring any major event like that, it is so cyclical, especially in the aspect of, you know, a subscription model or pay as you go model or, you know, pay for services that are a la carte, anything like that, where you're really looking for that income to just keep coming back every single month. It's hard, man, when you hit Q4 and all the decision makers are on vacation or they're done making decisions and they're focusing on year end. And then it comes back around to the first of the year and you have like that first couple of weeks slump just trying to get back into it. And it's like you see the churn happen 
and the customers kind of leave or stop buying so much or whatever the case may be. And then, you know, you're losing all of that income and you're like, oh my God, even if it was a really good year, all of a sudden you're scared to death because you're like, I've got people relying on me for income and I've got to pay them. But like you said, maybe I need to cut costs over here because things are getting so bad. And then you go into that like disaster mode and then all of a sudden all of the sales flood back in and everything gets so busy again. And then now you're trying to catch up. It's just like a roller coaster sometimes. And we've been, we've been fortunate in the model itself is a pay for performance model based on uh, actual performance and not just on effort uh, that in times of tough financial times and lean budgets, uh, we, we look like a more uh, advantageous model to many people. Uh, it's far more accountable for one thing. Uh, also, you don't have the fat bloated uh, uh, hourly fees that are running up on people and so forth. So in effect, we use that to our advantage in tough times as well, that, that we offer something. While we may not be less expensive, we're certainly more accountable. And uh, you know you're getting something every time we send you a bill. Uh, so, but, but, you know, the other thing, John, is that in those kind of times, anytime, you, if you're going to last 30 years, which we are now on approaching our 30-year anniversary, uh, you've got to adapt to the times, too. You can't still be the same exact firm you were when you started out 30 years ago. And if, if you're uh, a, a couple of things I always advise people. One, learn to adapt to what's going on. Uh, the media world has changed dramatically over the last 30 years. Even more so over the last 10 to 5 years, it's changed dramatically. Uh, you have to learn to make your services fit and, and your model fit that in some way or another. So you've got to learn You've got to learn to be flexible. You've got to learn to be dexterous. You've got to, you've got to figure out a way to, to survive even when things are changing around you. And if you're, if you're bright, you've got bright people around you, which is another thing that really makes a difference in terms of any company, whether you've got three employees or a hundred employees, uh, make sure you're hiring the brightest people you possibly can. Uh, I tell that people all the time. I, I hire people much, much smarter than me. Okay. Uh, I act like a, uh, if you want to call it a conductor or a producer, uh, putting really great smart people around me and, and giving them the freedom and the kind of the overall direction and protection to make, even make mistakes at times. But that's, that's a big, big plus in terms of growing your company is, Understanding and also understanding, and I've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly in the tech world, understanding when you've got to let go. When, when you've reached a certain level where you need to have somebody else basically making some of the decisions and running the company for you. Uh, I've seen too many entrepreneurs over the years in the tech world that couldn't, that couldn't realize that they didn't know everything that that it was time to have somebody come in and take a look at, it, particularly if your business is rapidly growing, you've got to be able to do that. So 
anyway, it's just, it's been an interesting road. I've, you know, like I said, I've, now I've been in this business for over 50 years and, uh, I've seen a lot of changes and ironically, I've seen a lot of things that haven't changed at all. You know, human nature is still the same. Egos of CEOs are still the same. Uh, the, uh, uh, the banks are still the same, uh, you know? So, uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's exciting. And I, I'm still, I don't regret a day in the world where I didn't want to be my own boss and to run my own operation since I've started. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's the thing that every entrepreneur has in common is that they really want to be the one that's kind of leading that charge, working for themselves, not having to clock in and make somebody else rich, but really building your own future. I mean, I know for me, I am highly motivated by money because I value my time and I know what I'm worth. And I know that I don't want to do the job for any less than a certain amount. And it's, it's easier to kind of, you know, pay yourself based on your own willingness to get out there and bust ass. It's nicer to be able to say, Hey, you know what? I do deserve this much money. I have earned this much versus working for someone else and working for what they value you at, you know, allowing the market to kind of value you. But one big thing I wanted to go back to, I know this was early in our conversation, but I absolutely love how you said that you went to New York and you walk into a big, well-known firm and you're standing there at the gatekeeper's desk, the front desk, you know, and it's just kind of like a Hail Mary of, I, I don't know, this is this is where I need to be. I'm coming to look for that job. And then the co-founder walks out and has the time to take you back for five minutes. And what I love about it is it's the story of like everything. For me, I relate it back to theater. I was in theater in high school and I had a, a, a director tell me one time, she said, every day is an audition. So you should treat it like an audition. And it relates to theater. But if you think about it, going for a job, really, you are auditioning in front of him, right? It's an easy relation there. And it's, it took everything from what you were wearing, how you carried yourself to how you walked into that front door. And the timing had to be perfect when you walked through that front right. door. Right. And it's just the way that you carried yourself and presented yourself. Somebody thought this is worth you know, taking a look. I mean, you could have done a million other things to try and get a job interview there. But the fact that you walked through the front door, even with a bad looking suit, you still had a suit on, whether it was fitted well or not, you know, and you were still presentable and you were still probably that exactly what he was looking for. Like you said, you know, that Midwestern gentleman, like not walking in with that New York attitude. I own everything. I'm willing or I, I'm sorry, I am I deserve to be here. You walked in with that, like, Hey, I want to be here. And yeah, I think and that it just goes to show everything you do really matters as far as, you know, how you present yourself and when you put yourself in these situations. Well, there's a lot of serendipity obviously involved, even in that kind of an occasion, but I look back on it and there's, there's a backstory even to that moment when I walked in, which is, uh, uh, I'm, I started writing letters in those days. It was, writing and mailing letters and sending out yep. letters, uh, before I'd actually received my, uh, graduate degree. And I probably, and I remember I wrote, uh, what something like 52 letters. Okay. Wow. And to, uh, to different agencies around the country and so forth, particularly in New York. Uh, 
and uh, and I received no responses, zip, except for one job offer in St. Louis of all places, and uh, and I forget, and one uh, one other that, but basically I decided, you know, I'm going to have to go do this myself. Letters aren't going to do it. My faculty advisor said, no, just keep writing letters and you're going to, you know, and I said, no, I'm going to put together enough money to go to New York and pound the pavement. And uh, so it wasn't without uh, that. There was a serendipity moment that the vice chairman happened to walk out. But I was there because I had made the effort and thought it through that I actually had to be there. So I often hear people, you know, there's that I think there's a saying somewhere about luck is uh, is is a product of uh, of timing and effort. And uh, uh, there was an effort that goes into I happened to be in that right moment when so the luck could take its place. But if I hadn't put in the work, I wouldn't have been there. So uh, what you're saying is very true uh, in terms of uh, and I, I you know, the other thing is, I think he saw. I hope he did. I've tried to live it pretty much all my life. Is there's a certain integrity involved, uh, it, whether it be Midwest or Eastern or Western or whatever. But uh, we get we get a lot of credit either for being you know down to earth and uh, having a lot of integrity in the Midwest. But I've seen I've seen equal amounts of of uh, chutzpah as well as integrity elsewhere in the world. But I think that that's part of it uh, is. Being honest and, and showing your integrity when you are interviewing or when you're talking to clients. And uh, by the way, one of the things that I do believe in, and I still believe in, even with the world of the Internet and Zoom and Google Meet and all of those things, I still believe in face to face. I believe that a lot can be accomplished in meeting face to face, shaking hands, talking across a table having lunch, whatever it is. But I I still try to do that as much as I possibly can, both with clients and uh, with prospects when we're looking for them. So I, I, I'm old-fashioned that way, but I still believe there's a certain value in, uh, in having that face-to-face. Even, and like I said, the irony is that I built this company on being a remote company that all of my people basically, other than a core headquarters staff here in Kansas City. All of them work out of home offices, but but face-to-face is important. It's another way to show that, what I talked about, that integrity. Uh, when you look at somebody, and I'm looking at you right now, and you look like you're, you're a guy that is truthful and so forth, but there's something about being face-to-face with somebody where you can really get a better, a good read on somebody. So I'm old-fashioned that way, and I and I'd like to think that uh, uh, our clients uh, respect that, even though we obviously, for cost reasons and a lot of other things, you 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 do much more these days, you know, uh, via the internet and uh, and Zoom calls and so on. But I still think it's important every once in a while to get out there and press the flesh. I mean, I couldn't agree with you anymore. It's it's kind of like how now we've switched from writing letters to emails being the big right. thing. That's that's how we communicate in our you know mass communications. But how do you feel when you get a handwritten letter in the mail? I agree. You know, it's 
it brings back all of those feelings of like, not just the nostalgia of it, but the actual fact that someone took their time to put pen onto paper and write that down because I can copy and paste all day long and send a thousand emails out in a matter of minutes by just copying and pasting and hitting send. And that means nothing. And it can be addressed to you and have a personal story attached to it about you, but it feels like it's real, but it's all a machine that put all that together for me. But when I sit down and hand write a letter and send that, you know that there was intention behind it and you know that it meant just a little bit more. And oh, it's the I same agree. thing for me with that face to face. Like this is great. We could see each other. We're talking to each other, having a great conversation. But when you walk into the room and you shake someone's hand and you get that feeling from each other and you can read more body language than you can on a camera and all of these things, it really does, too, I think, open both parties up to a better conversation. If this was a sales consultation from me to you or you to I, then it would be a lot easier for us to do that in person where we have kind of more persuasive um capabilities just because we're in the flesh in person and it's harder to just say no or shut someone down when they're right there in front of you and they genuinely are giving their attention and time to you. So I, I love that. I'm stuck in the old ways too sometimes. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The handwritten note after a meeting is always valuable and so forth. I, you know, one of the ironic things, which I'm going to sound like a real old fogey now is that uh, I learned that my grandson, uh, they're not even teaching cursive in yep. school anymore. I mean, how they know how to you know how to write your name, but you can't write a letter. I mean, I I find that just amazing. You know, uh, you know that the good old pad where you sit there and practice your handwriting, but they just don't do it anymore. So anyway. <laughs> So you yeah, you should bust out one of your old letters and ask, "Hey, read this to me and see what he says." Yeah, at least at least sign your name real, you know. <laughs> so anyway, it's, I'm with uh, you. So I know we've yeah we went on a big tangent there, but I, I love it. That's what we're here for is those awesome conversations. So your company specifically. Are you looking for, because, you know, I've talked to other PR firms before and I work in the government sector as well. So I'm familiar with the crisis PR firms and kind of how they operate. But what is your ideal customer like? You know, how do I know if I'm a good fit for Inc. Inc.? Well, lately, I mean, because it, it changes. Any, any smaller to medium sized company looking and needing to have exposure in the earned media. And you know what I mean by earned media, which is non-paid. So we don't, we're not an ad agency. We're a, we, we have to convince the media, the editorial side of the media, whether and including podcasters these days, that we have a story that's worth covering. Our client is worth covering. And the angle that we're pitching is worth the news value and so forth. So, uh, that's very much what, in some ways, we actually consider ourselves a, a pseudo news organization because we recognize that if, it, if a story that we're pitching to the media doesn't have news value, whether it be a, whether it be a tech crunch or whether it be a Wall Street Journal or whether it be a Paducah Daily newspaper, uh, has to have news value. And, uh, uh, otherwise, and 
by the way, that goes against an old, old myth in this business that, that relationships and contacts are the most important thing that a PR firm has. And I say, as I've said in my book, that's BS. Okay. Because, uh, you could have the world's greatest relationship. You could be married to a news director, which we've had, by the way, and pitch them a story. And unless it has news value, they're not going to run that story. And so it, uh, the relationship sure is very nice to be able to pick up a phone or, or get an instant response from email or a text. But at the same time, if you're not going to deliver something that's newsworthy, it's not going to happen. So, one of the things I emphasize with our people and always have from the very beginning is what we call news instincts, having great news instinct. I want, I want news junkies to work for me. I want people that, that spend time in a paper or online or watching TV, even if it's pop culture news. I like people that are well-rounded, that have an understanding of what's going on politically in the world, what's going on business-wise and economically in the world and locally as well as nationally. I want people that also understand pop culture. Uh, and all of that's going to relate eventually to different kinds of clients that we would have and how to craft a pitch that's going to resonate with the media that you're trying to convince to do a story. Uh, uh, that's, a, that's a different kind of thing. It certainly is different than when I was working in other firms. I mean, the uh, the media outreach part was often, if it wasn't just churning out press releases, I worked for a giant firm, by the way, one time, then they were so proud of the fact of for this tech company that their client, that they were churning out a million two in billable hours, churning out press releases every year and saying, wow, can you imagine? Not what the value of those press releases were for the client, but how much money they were making by writing press releases. I thought that's, that's again, kind of where that integrity comes in. That's BS. That's not helping your client, you know? So I, I, I just believe strongly that you've got to be able to work around the media. And it's one of the reasons that I even call the firm sometimes, and it's kind of blasphemous in this business, but we're media centric almost more than we're client centric. That if we don't, if we don't, if a client comes to us with a great story, or even if they don't have a great story, and it's our job to dig up and find a great story within there, find a, a hook that's going to resonate, it has to work with the media's needs and wants. If it doesn't, you're not going to get that big coverage. You may get a press release run somewhere, picked up and run, but you're not going to get that great coverage that gives you, gives the client a third party endorsement and much different than advertising where you're paying for somebody to say nice things about you as opposed yeah. to having an independent reporter, producer, editor say nice things about you. And that's where the real value and the real credible value of PR comes. And uh, hopefully it's what we're still, we're still trying to sell 30 years into my business, that's what we sell every day is that credible value of, of editorial, earned editorial coverage. 
No, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I just, I've heard of so many different types of PR firms and, um, you know, the different, I guess, PR offerings. Um, it's not just, like you said, this paid media side is, is really what's pushed hard of just pay to get the story out there versus kind of curate that story on your own well, <clears throat> and then get that newsworthy story out there. Yeah, and interesting, many what would be called PR firms in the old days are now called uh, uh, are, are called media firms or or marketing firms and so forth. And uh, but we we provide a niche service. I recognize that, and I'm not knocking the other disciplines of PR. I've been in and I've done those other disciplines, whether it be crisis management for Tylenol or the new Coke or. Uh, or several other kind of things. I've been in that. I've been in the world of financial PR, where you're trying to make sure you're you're compliant with SEC things, giving advice and counsel. I've been in the, uh, if you want to call it the, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the exact term for it, but uh, the kind of PR firm with celebrities, where you're basically covering their ass when they've mm. done something stupid. I've been in all of those things, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with doing it and doing it well. We just happen to cover that part, which is what we call the news part of, the news part of PR. And that's landing good editorial coverage in the paid, in the earned media, not paid media. And as long as we feel we've got that niche covered and doing it extremely well, um, we figure we'll survive and even thrive. There's nothing wrong with those other disciplines. Not a thing. There's nothing wrong with paid media. Certainly not. And now today's social media, many PR firms are, you know, what we do with our clients is we, we basically say that we're the beginning of your social media program. Because if you don't have this kind of earned, credible content that's created through editorial coverage, that then can be distributed through all of your social media channels. That's where the value comes in. But it starts with the first piece of credible editorial coverage. And uh, that's still extremely valuable to something where you pay per click and all of those things where you're uh, reposting things and so forth. What we want to repost and what we tell our clients to do, and we do work with social media, by the way, we, we help advise our clients in terms of how to, how to best get, how to best repost and get the story out that we've created through editorial media. And, uh, that's, we still think that's the core of a good communication program. But, you know, the best marketeers in this country, the best marketeers are those that combine, that have a good marketing mix, whether it be paid advertising, public relations, uh, employee communications. All of those things are part of what that, uh, uh, the arrows in the quiver, so to speak. I used to have a boss that talked about the uh, all the different arrows in the quiver. And in, in my company's case, we just happen to have one one arrow in that quiver and we want to make sure it's the damn good one. Yeah, absolutely. So if I determine I, I may be a good fit for you, what's the best way for me to kind of arrange that 
that meeting like because what I'm thinking in my head is this is like a paid earned media thing. So after you deliver, that's where you're going to get that bill. But I just need to know, like, should I start my relationship with your company now or is this something where I should wait until I feel I have a, a no, newsworthy story is, and then share that? Yeah, we are. Uh, and I'm very upfront about this. We're, we would be considered a hybrid model meaning that we do charge a small monthly fee, a service fee, okay? Uh, gotcha. And then we ask the client to earmark a contingency, earmarked budget, not escrowed, but earmarked budget, against which those large placements will be charged during the period of time of a, and we ask for a, usually we ask for a, a minimum a six month agreement, uh, uh, we ask because it takes time to develop some of those stories. Sometimes sure. they may happen in a week. Sometimes they may happen in three months. Sometimes, you know, we've had stories on CBS Sunday morning that took a year and a half to get to develop and do and so forth. So, uh, but how, how we approach a client and how a client approaches us, usually it's because, uh, uh, well, most of our business comes referenced from other clients. Uh, it comes from uh, uh, what I call the serial uh, CMO, chief marketing officer that lands in one spot, does his magic or his or her magic, and then goes to another spot. And they'll call us because we work for them so well in the last company they were with. So it's that kind of reference that does it. Uh, we also have an, we, we hope we have an aggressive uh, uh, email program going where we are looking for specific kinds of businesses. In this case, our, our point of reference lately has been FinTech. Uh, FinTech is a very hot thing going right now around the world. We do that. We're also, believe it or not, now we're going international and we have for the last, actually the last several years, We've had clients out of Israel and out of China and uh, and out of Mexico uh, and certainly out of England. But uh, we are aggressively going after that market by by meeting with embassies and the trade people in the embassies, pointing out that small to medium sized companies in based in your country, whether it be Israel or whether it be in lately Vietnam where there be other places that are looking to somehow break into the U.S. media market, meaning they want to market their product, their service, their app, their software, whatever it is in the United States market. How do they get the coverage and how can they compete against bigger guys in terms of that getting that kind of editorial coverage I'm talking about? And we can show them how to do that because that's our specialty for that small to medium-sized company, not the big guys. Big guys don't need us, you know. Uh, it's the small to medium-sized companies. Many of them are entrepreneurs. We we tend to only want entrepreneurs, though, that have at least gone through one round of funding and perhaps two. Uh, I, we want to make sure they can, obviously, uh, they have a budget that they're willing to spend. Uh, but. Uh, it's those small to medium sized companies that, uh, you know, that can fit in that what we call the eight to $12,000 a month range of expenditures 
as opposed to the twenty to two hundred thousand dollar range, which the big guys wow. charge. Okay, and uh, and we like to think that's but uh, so we're aggressive in terms of our outreach, in terms of our own outreach, in terms of talking to uh, where we think those markets will lie, where we want to get in front of people. Uh, you know, even my book, I wrote that book last year and it's, uh, uh, called it's the, uh, it's the media stupid PR without the BS. And even that is, you know, it's a marketing tool because it tells basically, uh, uh hopefully with a little bit of humor and, and a lot of anecdotal, uh, stories, uh, about 50 years in the business, but it also passes on what I call this. The, the key elements of what makes your story newsworthy enough for the media to cover it, because ultimately it's the media quote stupid. That is the important thing. Yeah. I, I love it. Um, we're obviously big into that kind of stuff too. You know, books are a, a great resource to get knowledge from as well as to find out why you don't want to do a particular subject and why you should hire the person who wrote this book to do that that thing for you. So I definitely love that. What is the best way to get in touch with you, learn from you, and most importantly, eventually sign up with you? Well, the best, obviously the best way is to uh, basic contact. I mean, email, I mean, uh, dgrove at inkinkpr.com. Uh, our website, which is www.inkinkpr.com. Uh, and there's ways on the website to contact us. Uh, one of the easiest ways that I don't mind doing that is just I give you a direct line to me. Uh, and that's 816-210-6035. Uh, if it's not to me, then contact our head of business development. And uh, her name is Amy Thomases. And her email is A Thomases, T-H-O-M-A-S-E-S at inkinkpr.com, all of which will get us to us. Um, and we'd love to talk to you, obviously. Uh, we'll qualify it pretty much, whether one, whether we think we can help you as a client, and two, what, what would be involved in some of the potential costs and so forth. Uh, um, and we're, like I said, we're aggressively looking, but we, we, tend to fit that niche of the small to medium-sized company looking to break through the media. And by the way, one of the things, John, that a lot of clients come to us is when they've had bad experiences with traditional PR firms. <laughs> uh, they'll say, God, the guy, they charged me an arm and a leg for three or four or six months or a year, and I only saw one or two stories, you know, or I didn't see anything, but I kept getting those bills every God. And, uh, and I, I love those kind of companies, to be honest with you, because it's, it's easy to convince them that there is a better way to do it and a fairer way and a, a way that has certainly more integrity and certainly a lot more accountability. And that's, that's, that's what we based our business on. So I, I sound like yeah. a, a pontificating in sales, but, uh, uh, I still have the passion after all these years of believing in what we do and how we do it. And, uh, and I love our clients and I certainly, the people that have worked with me, I have people that, by the way, some of those people I first looked at 
they're still with me 25, almost 30 years later. So uh, there's, we have a lot of loyalty of really good people that know how to pitch and play stories that work for us. And we, we pride ourselves on that network of, uh, of what we call senior level people, not, and forgive me to all those kids out there, but not kids, but uh, not people right out of college, but these are people that have been doing it for 15, 20 years or more. And they really know how to go after and get stories in the media. Yeah, it's super important. Uh, I, I think PR is something that people who are big enough to know that they need it, obviously they understand that that importance. But I think it's something that is kind of you know slept on when it comes to a lot of businesses these days. They don't value how much PR can really work for them and do for them. Uh, I mean, we're always talking about sounding like you're, you're pontificating and selling and, and all that. Everything is a sales pitch. You know, we are trying to persuade you to give your attention to something, whether it's a TV show, uh, a news program, or this podcast, or, you know, something that you're posting online about. We're always trying to sell you on getting some of your time. And PR can just absolutely help you to be that one that's right up front that's getting that time, that recognition. Well, right, particularly in the beginning. You've got to you've got to sow some seeds of knowledge. You, people, once once you feel like, and you asked a question a while ago about whether somebody should wait until they're firmly got their message established and all of that before going out. And we tend to not. Uh, that's wonderful if you do, uh, but the truth of it is, it may not be a good message for the media. Uh, we like to get in on the early stage with our clients. Uh, to talk to them and to kind of help them come up with a media-friendly message. And I say that because not every message is media-friendly. Uh, I've come across many prospects and many press releases, oh my God, that are just full of puffery and so forth and have nothing to do with what it is that's going to hook that reporter or that producer or that editor uh, to say, you know what, I'd like to learn more about that. That sounds interesting to me, as opposed to, oh, God, another one of these. And they wrap it up and toss it in the wastebasket, you know. Uh, uh, so we like to get in early if we can. And that's the first month we don't charge. We charge a very tiny re uh, uh, monthly fee. It's not really a retainer. It's a monthly fee. And the, the first month is very small for that very reason, that we know we don't want the client to get discouraged because they're paying a lot of money. And what we're doing is spending a, a good deal of time trying to come up with those things that are going to really make you media friendly. And uh, uh, and so we like to get earlier rather than later. Uh, too many times a client comes to us and says, I need another six months and we're getting our act together and we're getting our messaging <laughs> down and so forth. And, and uh, we call that around here, getting your ducks in a row, quack, quack, quack. Uh, but really what that means is uh, it, that's where I like to say, look, bring us on. It's not going to cost you very much money because the big money you're going to pay us is once we start delivering stories. You know, bring us on to help you with that. That's what we do better than you probably do yourself, you know. So hope that answered I love it from a long time ago. 
No, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's uh, to me, I kind of like look at it as I've got, you know, someone that I'm paying a small monthly fee to make sure that I'm getting ready to go. And then when it's game time, I'm paying you for that performance or okay. giving you kind of like a bonus. You know, it's like, hey, you're paying us because we are doing work. You can see this work. We're prepping you. We're getting the stuff together kind of behind the scenes. And then it's like, all right, game time goes and we won the game for you. Now we want a little bit of a bonus on that that's been preconceived what it's going to be and and you're able to see that and there's transparency and accountability there. I think that's the big thing is so many firms are able to just say, yeah, you're going to pay us this much money per month. And, oh, if something pops up and happens, we'll be there to help you cover that crisis. Or, oh, if, you know, this occurs, we'll be there. But you're not seeing every single day that you are getting X, Y, Z for what you're paying for. So I kind of like that where, you know, you pay for the behind the scenes stuff that keeps us going and in a relationship together. And then once we win that game for you, pay for it. Even when the the monthly fee continues, it's what we call all inclusive. So we never charge an hourly fee or uh, it it includes everything from even writing a couple of press releases because every client needs a press release for one thing or another, but not pitching the media, but they need a press release. And we'll cover that. It covers all the strategic thinking. It covers all the phone calls, all the any kind of meetings. Uh, all of that is covered under that. And it's basically, it is a small fee. And I don't think anywhere when they're under that kind of a hybrid structure, that fee never, even when it expands, it's more than 3000 a month. So uh, we like to think that where we make our money is when we actually deliver the stuff that's going to make a difference. And that's, that's those nice, big, fat stories that, uh, that suddenly make you, uh, makes the client smile and makes their kids proud. And, uh, and, uh, even their bankers say, Hey, I read about you in Forbes, you know, (laughs) that I enjoy sending a bill for. No, I think that answers the question very well and, uh, definitely shows value in what y'all do. And you're right. It's like, once you have that story, already you're going to be making enough money that your company is big enough. You can afford these bills. You can afford to pay the stuff. I mean, that's part of qualifying for a partnership with you anyway. But then once you get that story, right. I mean, that's going to skyrocket you to the top and paying that fee is going to be nothing. That's just going to be the cost of doing business and you're going to be happy with right. it. So we hope that- I definitely think it's important. Well. Perfect. I think that's a great place to end the show. And I just, I can't thank you enough for coming on and talking to us and sharing not only your personal origin story, but everything about what you have going on with the company as well. Well, happy to do it. And uh, let me know if you have any other questions, John. I appreciate it. Okay. Absolutely. Listeners, Thank you, as always, for tuning in for another episode of Small Business Origins and all of that contact info that Dick talked about earlier in the show. We're going to have that linked in the show notes for you. So please, as always, make sure that you're going in there, supporting our guests, checking out all the things that he has going on with his firm. And if he's a good fit, I hope that you find a great relationship there where I can read about you or see you on the morning news one of these mornings with Ink Ink. PR firm. So Dick Grove was our guest today. Dick, thanks again for being on and listeners, we will see you on the next one. And until then, stay beefy, my friends.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Small Business Origins. I love an origin story. If you like what you just heard, leave us a review, subscribe, and share with a friend. You guys, check this out. They're going to love it. You're going to love it.